Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 174 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show was an early pioneer of web standards, writing a best-selling book on the subject of CSS. He then went on to found ClearLeft, arguably the first dedicated UX consultancy in the UK. He also set up Deconstruct, the UK's first digital design conference, and UX London, the country's first dedicated UX conference. So welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast, Andy Budd. Hi, Phil. It's really nice to speak to you and thanks for having me on. The first thing I wanted to ask you really was about how you transitioned from the web standards and the the CSS aspect to founding ClearLeft. I mean, it was relatively logical transition, really. I mean, I guess I I got into the web relatively, um, well, I think relatively early, although some people might think relatively late. I got into the web around kind of 99. I started my life really as a Flash designer and Flash coder, making Flash games, animated games, all that kind of stuff that, that was sort of prevalent in the sort of late 90s, early noughties. But then I discovered CSS and just realized that web standards just felt like the way to go. Separation of presentation and content. You know, there was a whole bunch of things around accessibility and usability kind of baked into the philosophy. And it just felt like a really, really logical decision. So I was a fairly early adopter of of web standards. I think I had the third ever table list design in the UK. And actually, I met this guy called Jeremy Keith, who was in Brighton, who had the second ever table list sort of CS, pure CSS website in the UK. And we sort of bonded and we became friends. And he was one of my eventual co-founders at ClearLeft. My other co-founder was a chap also that happened to be in Brighton that ran a website called Sizzling HTML Jam Frazy, which was a really early resource for learning HTML. So the three of us got together and we were all kind of like early standards geeks. But actually, the things that I was really interested and a lot of my other co-founders were interested was kind of broader than just that. Like at the time I was doing a lot of information architecture, you know, so when clients came through to the agency that I was working at the time, we'd be doing site mapping, we'd be sort of creating controlled vocabularies, I'd be doing usability testing, creating prototypes, wireframes. And what I realized is, is back in sort of like the early noughties, Nobody else was really doing that. The kind of the default standard was to open up Photoshop and start moving boxes around and start designing. And so clearly we felt that we were sort of onto something, we do things differently. Um, around the sort of same time, an agency in the US called Adaptive Path launched. And they started talking about this thing called user experience design. We realized that this was something that was going to be interesting and, and quite sort of powerful. You know, this idea that design was more than just pretty pixels it was actually a problem solving approach and so we decided that rather than just being a css agency which would probably be a positioning for two or three years but as soon as css became the default way of delivering sort of you know front ends they, it wouldn't hold any kind of uniqueness but this ux thing was something special and so we set up ClearLeft. you know we called ourselves a ux agency at the time we were the only people calling ourselves that 
in retrospect, a lot of companies that maybe were usability companies or IA companies or what have you rebranded as UX. And so some of those companies have been in existence before us. But like I say, we're the first people to really hang our shingle up in this kind of UX sort of space. And for the first sort of three or four years, it was tough because nobody had a clue what it was that we did really and why we used to take twice as long and charge twice as much as everybody else. But over time, we kind of sort of, you know, the, the we helped educate the market and through some of our events and conferences and stuff. And I'd say jump forward now and, and you know, saying you're a UX designer is saying like you're, you know, you, you, you breathe air or drink water. It's just what all of us do pretty much. It's become the default way of, of delivering work. But yeah, I guess that's a quick potted history of how we set up ClearLeft and why we set up ClearLeft. Yeah, so I mean, as you say, UX is certainly something that's become, I suppose, almost second nature now. People know what it means. And I, I suspect at the time when you set up ClearLeft, that just wasn't the case. And therefore, the education process was so important to being able to make it a success. It was a superpower as well because nobody else was doing it. You know, we were doing this thing that was unique and we were able to connect with people that had a frustration around the way digital design was being delivered. And it wasn't strategic. It wasn't considered. It wasn't done with a scientific mindset. It was it was really art. And I think what we were always trying to do is kind of blend the whole balance between art and science. And in fact, one of my sort of early inspirations, he was one of the co-founders of um, Adaptive Path with a guy called Jeff Veen, who wrote a book called The Art and Science of Web Design. So we've always sort of taken an approach that was kind of slightly more practical, utilitarian, usability-led. And, you know, our clients very, very quickly realized the benefits. You know, we were focusing not just on making something that looked pretty, but making something that actually delivered business results. And and as companies moved away from purely sort of marketing fluff websites into sites that were products, that were services, that, that sold things, that there were transactions involved, this became increasingly valuable and important. So, yeah, it was a great it was a great place to be. Yeah, I was just about to touch on that sort of evolution as well. So obviously with the introduction of things like smartphones and and iPads and what other tablets that might be out there, presumably that whole user experience approach has evolved. I mean, it has. The tools have changed, definitely. I mean, there's such a plethora of tools now, but actually the underpinning sort of philosophy hasn't changed a ton. And the sort of general problem-solving approach is largely the same. There is a higher level of expectation from customers, often you know, users of, of, of digital services, often because they had really, really positive experiences with their smartphones. You know, in fact, that's you know the 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 rise of the smartphone and the invention of the iPhone, which is what now, eight, nine years ago, or maybe cool. maybe longer. I can't remember Whoa. when the iPhone actually de- <laughs> debuted. About a dozen years now. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, but that was something that kind of suddenly people you know, they were originally used to kind of like old, clunky, badly designed, difficult to navigate websites. And then suddenly people were creating these quite slick, minimalist, but still very, very practical, easy to use mobile phone experiences. And often that was the thing, yeah, eight, nine, 10 years ago that the the founders of companies wanted, they had this sort of phone experience and then they looked at their website or their web app and it was, it was terrible. And so that was a really, uh, you know, an important, milestone in encouraging people to think a little bit more you know about the usability of their 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 digital products yeah absolutely okay so andy can you perhaps share with us a career tip one that the audience may not know and perhaps should i don't think i have a particularly 
brilliant answer because at the end of the day, how you succeed in your career isn't through one or two really big moves or big decisions or big tips. It's through lots of tiny course corrections throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the year, throughout your entire career. And I've never been a real big fan of kind of like looking at these origin stories and, you know, trying to find the the defining moment. I mean, I think generally, if we want to talk in platitudes, I think it's always better to work in a company where you are not the best at the thing you do. I meet so many people who find themselves in positions where they are, you know, maybe even only two, three years into their career, but they're the best full stack developer or front end developer or UX designer or visual designer, or whatever in their company. And that's great because it gives you a real sense of, you know, power and importance, but you really, really quickly stop learning. And so I think it's always great to try and find opportunities where you can kind of almost understudy and um, not be the smartest person in the room because you learn so much more that way. So I think that's a really, really useful approach to your career, kind of basically always be learning. You know, I think there's a lot, again, there's a lot of platitudes around the industry changing a lot. I don't think it actually changes anywhere near as much as we'd like to think. Like I say, particularly the underlying thought process and problem solving process, but there are always new tools, there are always new technologies. So you kind of need to have like a beginner's mindset and you need to always be learning. And so as long as you do that, I think the challenges people have is when they stop learning, they rely on a set of tools, they they have a whole bunch of processes that become a bit of a crutch. And then eventually when those tools die out, they're really stuck. I mean, we saw this like, you know, three or four years ago with with Photoshop, for instance, for many years in the design industry, Photoshop was the tool that people use for delivering you know, digital UI. And then Sketch came up and then Sketch for the last three or four years has been the default tool. And actually now Figma is sort of overtaking Sketch in, in, in some regards. And so if you're somebody that has like, you know, doubled down on a particular tool like Photoshop, your skills are becoming increasingly um, out of date. And so, yeah, constantly be learning from other people, constantly be be keeping your tools fresh. Don't rely on one tool. Find lots of opportunities to to try new techniques and new skills. Yes, we, we know that um, languages and, and packages and all sorts of things like that definitely have their own shelf life. And, and there'll be something new and, and more effective that becomes the latest preferred tool, if you like. So, yeah, I think that's great advice. So, Andy, can you share with us your worst IT career moment and what you learned from that experience? Again, it's an interesting phrasing how you say that. I mean, I understand you are, you know, the the, the IT career energizer podcast. Um, I actually don't self-describe myself as being in the IT industry. You know, I'm definitely in the design industry, in the digital industry. IT to me, you know, kind of speaks of, of servers and LAN cables and, and and kind of sort of more hardware. So I don't really necessarily self-identify as, as being an IT person necessarily. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not how I identify. In terms of like, you know, bad career moments or bad career advice, again, I can't really think any of any off the top of my head. I mean, I've been incredibly fortunate career-wise. A lot of it is just luck. It's about being in the right place in the right time. I've never really sought out advice from from individuals again in that sort of platitudes style and i've never really been given any particularly bad advice so i kind of struggle to answer that question i'm afraid that's okay we'll move, we'll go on to hopefully which is a, a more straightforward question so could you tell us maybe about your career highlight i've had a great experience in my career as you'll probably know, I've done a lot of public speaking. 
my first ever speaking gig, if you will, was at a conference called South by Southwest, which is quite a, a sort of a well-known conference in the tech industry. So it was, it was both a highlight and also really, really terrifying to have, you know, my first ever conference be in front of a room full of a thousand people who could have easily been on stage instead of me and probably knew a ton more of than me kind of trying to sort of you know convince them that I actually knew what I was talking about but that was quite a big moment and actually for the first three or four years of of kind of clear left I guess you know South by Southwest was a very common part of our calendar again like one of my heroes also from Adaptive Path was a was a guy called Jesse James Garrett and I remember one here at South by Southwest sort of doing a book signing and I was sat next to Jesse James Garrett. That's the first time I'd ever really spoken. And it was really, really exciting to be sort of sitting there with one of your heroes, kind of like, you know, signing books and kind of chatting, chatting between people coming up and uh, and talking to you. So I guess I've got a lot of fond memories around South by Southwest. But yeah, I, you know, I've, I've got to travel all over the world. You know, I've been to lots of amazing places, all of which are kind of career highlights. We've worked with some amazing clients. Again, it's you know, it's like asking which of the, your your children you like the best. I think you know my 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 favorite clients are always constantly changing. But we've done some amazing projects with banks in the, sort of the Nordic region. So spending time in Copenhagen was really good fun. You know, I, we went and pitched to you know Zappos. So going and 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 going to Las Vegas and meeting all the folks at Zappos was was really exciting. So yeah, it's been lots of highlights. Really, I couldn't I couldn't single one out. I'm afraid. Right, that's fine. So, Andy, can you perhaps tell us what excites you about the future? I would say technology as well as IT, but the the whole sort of software engineering arena. What excites you about that and the future of careers in that area? I'm fascinated by the rise of artificial intelligence. At the moment, I think a lot of AI is basically just mechanical Turks. A lot of it is very, very simple branching kind of conversational flows and quite simple kind of systems. But I think we're getting to a point now where they're, you know, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, things are going to get very exciting and, and very weird. Because of that, about two years ago, I was feeling really out of the loop. And so I thought, well, I could just spend the next couple of years reading every article about AI that I could, reading every book. Or I could do what I do really well and bring groups of people together. So I got a bunch of science fiction authors, a bunch of academics, a bunch of people working on things like Alexa and and, um, Google Home and uh, ethicists and a whole bunch of interesting people from different backgrounds, people designing robots. And we hired out a hotel in Norway um, for three days. And we spent three or four days just really talking about all of the challenges and opportunities that AI had to offer. And coming off the back of that, I both felt really, really excited about the opportunities, but also sort of mildly terrified. <laughs> um, I'm not a doom monger and I'm not a kind of a, a tech utopian. I think the future will be sort of weirder, but also more mundane than we could possibly imagine. But I do think it's going to have a fundamental effect on everybody. I think we're moving away from, you know, hand coding in a, in a traditional text-based interface. I think we're going to be moving much more towards kind of visual coding. I think we're moving much more towards being curators and editors rather than uh, creators. I think 
the design industry is going to find itself in a really interesting point in about 10 years time when more and more and more of the work that we totally take for granted is automated. I think engineers are going to sort of have a, a similar experience. And so, yeah, I think the landscape is going to be fundamentally different in the next 10 or 20 years than it is today. And that's another reason why learning and keeping evolving is is hugely important because I think we're moving away from the idea of having a career for life. You know, I think we're moving away from the idea that you will start at the age of 18 or, or, or 21 or whatever as a designer or developer and you'll carry on doing that for the rest of your career. I think wide-scale automation is going to mean that people are going to have two, three, four careers in their lifetime as technology disrupts one industry and opens up doors for another. We're entering into a, you know, a lot of people have talked about a fourth industrial revolution and that will create winners and losers. It will create opportunities. It will create challenges, but it's definitely going to be exciting. That is definitely. So we're going to go into the reveal round now. We're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think. You ready for this? Uh, go for it. I sound like I'm on, it sounds like I'm on a game show now. There's a, <laughs> there's a re- reveal round. So really? uh, yeah, go for it. So what first attracted you to a career in IT? There's sort of two answers to this. I think one answer is probably like a lot of your listeners. Um, for whatever reason, I was attracted to computers at an early age. I'm of that age where my school had a, a BBC Micro, which was the first sort of one of the first commercially available computers, at least for schools. And while my kind of like my school friends were often running around outside playing football, I was inside mostly just playing snake games and, and playing with a little turtle, you know, robot drawer and kind of learning how to print my name over and over again, and you know, an infinite number of times. But for whatever reason, I was kind of drawn to technology. And I'm sure part of it involved growing up listening, you know, watching sci-fi and reading sci-fi movies, et cetera, et cetera. So I was the kid in school that, you know, had the first Spectrum computer and I would get magazines and I would sort of type out computer games to play at home. And so I'm kind of from that generation. And so that was always something that interested me. But for whatever reason, I never really saw it as a career. It was kind of, I was a hobbyist and I didn't really know, probably because I didn't really know anyone that had had careers in computing. You know, I come from a working class background and most of my family had kind of like, you know, blue collar jobs, but it it was always part of my sphere. After university, I did an engineering degree, uh, aeronautical engineering. So, you know, how planes fly, it wasn't very technical. And weirdly, it didn't really involve computers an awful lot. You'd have thought that they'd have all been using CAD and what have you, but I think we had like two lessons in CAD and that was it. So my degree didn't really massively involve um, computers a lot. Afterwards, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I went off traveling. I traveled around the world for something like six or seven years. And um, during that time, I discovered the internet in cyber cafes in, in Bangkok, in Jakarta, in India. And that became the way that I would sort of communicate with my friends back home. You know, this is early days when I guess prior to this your internet was sort of tethered to your mobile phone. But then like Hotmail came out and, you know, you could use email that wasn't tethered to your your home or what have you. And so it opened up a whole new world. And as I'd travel, I'd go to a cyber cafe in Bangkok. I'd research my next destination. And I guess two things happened. So one day I was in Indonesia in a post office using my computer and I was emailing my friends and I saw the guy next to me and he wasn't in Hotmail. He was in this weird sort of terminal looking interface and there were angle brackets and, and and all these kind of weird things. And when he sort of got up to left leave, I was like, you know, excuse me, what were you doing? He's like, oh, I was building my own web page. 
And I was like, what, you can build a web page? You know, I didn't even, I, you know, I assume these things just magically sprung out, <laughs> you know, somewhere, God knows. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, um, rather than email all my friends, I upload photos and I talk about where I'm going. And thinking about it, you know, this was probably in sort of, again, like 96 or something. This was probably one of the first travel blogs, at least the first travel blog I had ever kind of come across. This person, whoever it was, was a pioneer. And so I thought, okay, well, next time I go home, I'm going to learn to do this web thing. And so, you know, I can I can keep a travel blog. This was well before Peter Merholtz coined the term blog, by the way. This was before, you know, anyone was even doing this. And then also I happened to be in a in a, a hostel in Singapore and there was this English guy and I got chatting to him and I was like, well, what do you do for a living? He was like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a web designer. I was like, well, what's that? And he's like, well, I do this thing called HTML. It's really easy. Anyone can do it. You don't need to be particularly good or smart or talented. And you get paid a shit ton of money. And so I travel for six months and work for six months. And I was like, wow, I like the sound of that. And so I came back to the UK in 99. I bought a little, you know, a Pentium 486. I got online. I taught myself how to code mostly from a uh, mostly front end and mostly from a website called ask dr web um which was run by a guy called jeffrey zeldman who then started um a zeldman.com a list apart event apart he's a very influential figure in the whole web standards world and actually he's subsequently become a good friend of mine as well and um yeah i, I kind of learned to code and i never actually did go back traveling you know i got one job then i got another job and then i set up a business and then you know jump forward 20 30 years and I'm kind of still cracking away. Right. Okay. And what is the best career advice you've ever received? Again, in terms of career advice, I guess it's less around um, career advice as a IT or design practitioner. It was more career advice around being a business person. And I read a book. It's a terrible book, actually, called The E-Myth Revisited. It's got one of those covers that's like it was designed in the 60s. It's kind of, you know, it's like a self-help book for business people. But somebody I met who I, who I respected was like, oh, you're starting a business. Read this. And the one piece of advice it had in there, which I've, I've kind of basically carried on using for you know, my entire career, is to constantly be trying to make yourself redundant. Constantly try and find people that can do the things that you don't like doing or maybe not very good at doing so you can focus on the things that you are good at doing i was a pretty good designer i was a pretty good coder but there were people out there that are better than me so you know i hired people to do that and then you know i was pretty good project manager and studio manager but i hired people better than me to do that pretty good salesperson i hired people better than me to do that I was the MD of the company Clear Left for the last sort of 14 years, but I've found someone else that's probably better at me at doing that as well. So I've constantly kind of tried to find opportunities to make myself redundant, to free up the time to do the things that are really important. And the way that they kind of talked about this in the book is it's important for you to be working on your business, not in your business. I think that's a really, really good piece of advice. And I think it's also, you know, good to think about your career as well. You know, you need to be constantly seeing your career as a journey as almost like a small business and be working on it rather than just letting it kind of take you in, in whatever direction. So, yeah, definitely, you know, working on your business, not in your business, I think is um, important because otherwise you get trapped and nobody wants to get trapped. So, yep, no, that's great. And what is the worst career advice you've ever received? I mean, I guess... A common thing, again, when you're starting a business is to, oh, you need to have a business plan. And that might have been true 10, 20 years ago. 
it just really isn't that relevant now. That doesn't mean you shouldn't think about the career and think about your your kind of you know your your journey as a business person and kind of do some modelling. But I think the you know the, the days of worrying about kind of business plans are sort of slightly behind us. Worrying about that kind of stuff, I think, is sort of unnecessary. If you were to begin your career again in today's world, what would you do? Well, that's a very very difficult question in terms of whether I would do what I'm doing now or not. I don't know because I've only lived this life and I quite enjoy what I do. And so I would like to think I would go into the same industry, the same career. I think I was incredibly fortunate because I started doing design and development in a time where you could be a really bad designer and a really bad developer. And nobody would notice because everybody was a really bad designer and developer. So I've got some horrible examples of design, which, you know, I hope nobody ever sees that are kind of probably still floating around on the web. But that's because everything on the web was horrible. Now, the barrier to entry is so much higher. The need to have beautifully architected code that's that's maintainable and scalable and accessible is is really high. The need to have a really, really high level and quality of design is really high. I would love to think that I'd be able to get back into the same position that I'm in at the moment, but I don't know whether I'd be good enough now. Who, you know, who knows? You know, I think it's 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 difficult to kind of break into this industry. Also, you know, if you find yourself in a position where you are charting new territory, it's really easy to make a name for yourself. When I started, it was a hobbyist, you know, and people were making money out of their hobby. Now it's a well-crafted profession. You know, there are I've got no hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people working in this industry. There are university courses, there are general assembly courses, there are boot camps, there are all these things. There's a mechanism sort of that's grown up behind it. So I think it's much, much harder to sort of get your break. I think most companies are looking for people with the three to five years experience. And so if you don't have three to five years experience, how the hell are you going to get it? How are you going to get your job when you've got no experience or a year or two if no one's hiring. So I think it's kind of a a tough environment. Also, like I said, I think we've seen a lot of changes, particularly in design and kind of like kind of small website kind of design shops, et cetera. You know, it used to be the case that if you were the local hairdresser or restaurant or or B&B, you would find a local freelancer and they'd knock something together in, you know, movable type or expression engine or WordPress, you know, thinking like 10 years ago. Now, you go and buy a Squarespace or a Spotify, a Shopify license for $50, and you've got a very, very credible looking, pretty well designed, pretty well built system that you've not had to touch any technologists with. And so because of that, I think it's really tough for those people that are trying to get that that experience because the whole low end of the market you know the entry level area of the market has been ripped out and so you know people are going straight out of university and expected to work at a high level in a delivery or you know an uber or a, a kind of a facebook so it's a difficult sort of career to break into nowadays so who knows how i would have fared and what career objectives are you currently focusing on Wow. Um, career objectives. I mean, that makes it sound like anything I've done has really been planned or considered, um, <laughs> which is probably not the case. I mean, I guess in the sort of the world of design and particularly in the world of architecture, there's this idea of a party, P-A-R-T-I, which is kind of like an overriding principle. And, you know, so often like an architect will build a, you know, they decide that they want to build a building that looks like a donut and that will be their overriding principle. Often it's quite shallow like that. I guess I've always had an overriding principle, which is whatever, you know, through whatever I've done, which is 
I really, really believe in the web. I believe in the web's ability to bring people together, to communicate across vast distances. I believe in the power of design to make people's lives easier, to make people's lives better, to deliver value. And so pretty much everything I've done, whether it's starting an agency, whether it's running conferences, whether it's speaking at events, it's all about trying to help people, help others, unlock the power of the web in order to do good in the world. And I know that sounds a bit kind of like trite and kind of, you know, like hippie maybe, but you know, I come from that kind of generation of people that were born from more of the um, the philosophical belief of the web, rather than it just being an industry. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the the kind of the early sort of web pioneers come from a slightly kind of Californian sort of West Coast sort of hippie background, and so there's a lot of morality and ethics and and, and kind of sort of philosophy baked into kind of the, the web, I guess. You know, just from the way it's architected. And also, I felt a real debt to early pioneers who put the web in place, shared their knowledge freely, like, you know, the, the Zelmans and the Jeff Fiends of the world and many, many others. And so I've always felt a necessity to pay it forwards. And so pretty much everything I do is focused around adding value and making things better, making the industry better, making the industry bigger, making it more professional. And yeah, and so that's, I guess, the thing that drives me. So yeah, if I've got any any focus it's that and that's less around career you know it's less around well i'm going to go and work at this company for you know four years and then i'm going to level up to a vp and then i'm going to you know get a job in san francisco that's never been of interest to me it's always been the um the values and the ethics and the the purpose i guess and so yeah I'm, i guess i'm probably more purpose driven than career driven and what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far when I was off traveling, I mentioned already that I spent about six or seven years traveling around the world. And one thing I fell in love with was the water. I've always been interested in the water. I've always surfed and kayaked and, and sailed. And I discovered scuba diving. And I very quickly got the bug. And I became a dive master, then a dive instructor. And one of the things I found really interesting being a dive instructor is you learn how to communicate. You know, you learn how to communicate with people who are nervous who, um, you know, you're communicating quite often technical information, information that if they don't necessarily follow, they might die. And so I'd never really been in a position of being an educator before that. But um, I guess learning the confidence to speak to, you know, rooms full of people, boats full of people to communicate succinctly and, and, and meaningfully, I think really set me up in a future career, particularly with the public speaking, but also running workshops and, and pitches and presentations and all the kind of stuff that, that goes with it. So, and I think, you know, one of the skills I look for in practitioners is, is communication skills, you know, writing skills and sort of verbal communication skills. That's a real, real useful thing that, that you can develop is your ability. You know, it's all very well that you can come up with a design solution or a technical solution, but if you can't explain it to anybody in a way that is meaningful and they get and they understand the value, you've not done your job fully. And so that's a, that's a good skill. It is definitely. And what do you do to keep your own career energized? My focus in my career is as a servant leader. You know, I'm really interested in servant leadership. The things and decisions I make are generally not in order to energize my career, but to energize other people's. And so that's really what I'm focused on. And hopefully, you know, if I do a good job, you know, if you do good things, hopefully your career will 
will grow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm very much focused the other way of helping other people energize their careers. And sometimes that's through mentorship and, and coaching. Sometimes that's through giving people opportunities at the company. Sometimes that's just through helping them learn and train and grow. Mm. And sometimes it's, you know, realizing when people have got to a point where they need to move on because they've learned everything they can learn from where you currently are and helping them, you know, move on to their next opportunity and their next gig. And so, yeah, that's really, you know, my, my focus is, is on other people rather than necessarily myself. And what do you do in your spare time away from the IT and technology world? I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big traveler. I still, you know, I, I, I don't go and do big long trips these days, but I'm kind of regularly darting over the world. Again, um, being a speaker, it allows me the opportunity to go to interesting places. So last year I traveled to New Zealand, Melbourne, Hong Kong, Japan, Chicago, New York. Um, this year, I've got trips to India coming up. I've got you know several trips to to the states, various places in Europe. And often when I'm I'm there, I'll make sure I take an extra couple of days or maybe a couple of weeks to kind of run around and explore. I love eating food. I'm currently doing something which is incredibly bourgeois, and I'm slightly embarrassed to even mention it. But I'm really really into good food. And I don't know if any of your audience have seen a, a Netflix show called The Chef's Table about some of the best restaurants in the world. Well, I found out that there was a list of the 50 best restaurants in the world. And I decided to make it my mission to eat at every one of those restaurants by the age of 50. Right. And so I'm slowly noshing my way through um, lots of really, really amazing restaurants. And actually in a couple of days time off to Vienna to have lunch at one of these restaurants. And so, you know, that's a fun thing. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of inspiration I take from experiences of all sorts, you know, you know, experiential theatre, theme parks, hotel experiences. And I think the hospitality industry and particularly restaurant experiences is um, hugely inspirational. So I've been loving eating my way around all these amazing restaurants. And, you know, this kind of goes to a bit of a philosophy, you know, which is quite a millennial attitude but actually i think is also resonates with a lot of people i know that are early early internet users which is basically you only get one life you know physical objects you know the the buzz fades you know you buy a new car a new stereo a new watch or whatever and you know a couple of days later or even a couple of hours later the buzz has faded but having amazing in-person experiences those last forever and so you know i'm slowly building up a kind of a a passport of great dining experiences and, and, and great travel experiences. On top of that, you know, I do a lot of diving. Well, actually, no, not a lot of diving, but I probably go on one dive adventure a year. I've been doing a bit of cave diving recently, so that's quite fun and terrifying in equal measure. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, oh, but I guess on a more regular basis, about four or five years ago, I started uh, bouldering, indoor kind of rock climbing without ropes. And I I really enjoy that. I guess for a while, I was starting to get a bit of RSI in my arms from all that mouse usage. And actually going to the bouldering gym, I found that it worked the opposite muscles to the muscles that I was, you know, um, you know having troubles with um, through mouse usage. And so all of my RSI is gone now, kind of touch wood. But also I found that it was... It was a lot more fun than going to the gym. And 
there's actually quite a kind of culture, particularly in sort of Silicon Valley, of of maybe the older generation of of business people used to go and play golf, whereas now a lot of kind of tech founders, startups, hackers, makers, whatever, are really into bouldering. So you'll you'll go to like you know dog patch boulders in in um in San Francisco, and you know probably two thirds of the people in there will be tech people, and so there's quite a, an interesting kind of correlation, and a lot of it is around kind of the fact that bouldering is problem solving. So each one of the the climbs you do is called a problem and there's a different kind of technique or kind of hack or whatever that you can do to kind of like, you know, solve that problem. And so you find yourself um, exercising without really realizing it because you're having fun and you're, you're solving problems. It's almost like a platform game, really. You solve a level, you get really into it, you try and do the next one and you kind of slowly progress. So yeah, bouldering is something I do quite a lot of. And Andy, can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT Career Energizer audience? You know, for the design industry, having a killer portfolio is everything. You know, people generally don't care about what school you went to, what university you went to. I think having some kind of career progression in your CV makes sense. So you want your CV to tell a story. You want, you know, the last three or four jobs to show progression and building up from one thing to another. But ultimately, you know, what you have in your CV generally is a is a claim of expertise. It's a list of skills that you are saying to the world, I can do this, and here is where I've done this. In the design world, I want evidence for that. So just seeing a list of skills down a CV that says I can do X, Y, Z, you know, you could have just learned, you know, read an article or, or read a book and sort of claimed that you could do that. And so I always look for, from designers, a portfolio that can demonstrate that. And that's not just the end design. It's not just like a nice looking site. If they say that they can do user research, I want to see, you know, three different kinds of, you know, photos from user research sessions they've done. If they say they can do, you know, prototyping, I want to see interactive prototypes. I want to see animated prototypes. I want to see paper-based prototypes. If they say they can do information architecture, I want to see sitemaps. I want to see controlled vocabularies. I want to see content um, audits. You know, I want people to demonstrate that they can actually do the things they claim. And I think a really, really good resume backed with a really, really powerful portfolio that demonstrates that you can do these things is is a killer. And anything else is just kind of, you know, is um, it's just claims that you, you can't substantiate. And finally, Andy, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? Well, many years ago, I was a very sort of avid blogger. Um, but I think basically Twitter has killed my blogging. These days, if you go to andybud.com, I'll be lucky to post one article a month. And I usually repost it on Medium. So you can either go to andybud.com or, you know, it's probably medium.com slash andybud. And you can see some of my articles. But I am a, a slightly... Um, obsessed Twitter user. Um, I keep occasionally stepping away, but you know, the psychological sort of behavior kind of triggers that baked into the system means that I kind of just, you know, I generally don't step away from long. So I, I, I tweet a ton. I've got a reasonable amount of people that follow me for whatever reason on Twitter. And so that's probably the best place to kind of start. You know, so I'm just, I'm just Andy Bud on Twitter. Okay. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I hope it's been of interest to you and and of use to your listeners. A quick thank you again to my guest on today's show for sharing their career tips, advice and experiences. 
You'll find a show notes page for today's episode on the IT Career Energizer website, which will be itcareerenergizer.com slash e, and then the number of today's episode. Now that there are three new episodes of the show every week, make sure that you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss out. And don't forget to join the new IT Career Energizer community group in Facebook. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be great to hear from you and to learn about your own career journey, your successes, opinions, and thoughts on the future of the industry. Thanks for supporting the show. And remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.